This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Joe Fusmith about his book, Forging Leninism in China, Mao and the Remaking of the Chinese Communist Party, 1927 to 1934, which is published by Cambridge University Press now in 2022. The book is a re-examination of the events of the Chinese Revolution and the transformation of the Chinese Communist Party in this very important time period of 1927 to 1934. Um, Dr. Smith offers an analysis of the development of the party that really gives insight not just into events that were happening at the time, but also helping us understand uh, the Chinese Communist Party um, as it then developed and kind of giving us some insight that maybe helps us understand um, where it came from and how it ended up maybe in quite a different place as um, his book describes. So I'm very interested today to learn more about his work and obviously share it with the listeners um, who presumably have not yet had the privilege of reading his book. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fusmith. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Melcher. If we could start off, please, with you maybe introducing yourself a bit, your academic background, and explain how you came to write this book. Well, thank you. Um, Academic background, I studied uh, at the University of Chicago, um, received my PhD in 1980, so it's been quite a while since then. Uh, And I've been now at Boston University teaching about China for what, 30 years? Um, And I work primarily on uh, contemporary domestic politics. Uh, Contemporary can be a bit ambiguous because I've started writing on this, uh, I guess, in the 90s um, and have been doing that for 30 years. So the definition of contemporary has changed over 30 years. But in any case, um, uh, one of the things that I never really got in my graduate work or early academic work was the history of the Chinese Communist Party, which is enormously important even to this day. Uh, And, you know, I'd had this question in my mind about uh, something known as the, uh, uh, as a Futian incident uh, or Futian uprising, Futian being the name of a a town in, in Jiangxi province. And this is something that's fairly uh, well known, uh, but not well understood. And I started reading about it. I started um, asking some questions about it. And sort of one question led to another question, led to another 
question. So it was really a lot of fun to do this. I, I just learned an enormous amount about the development of the Chinese Communist Party in this period and through sort of a, an expansive look at this one incident. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll stop that general description there and you, we can start exploring that. Yes, please. Let, let us start exploring that um, and perhaps start with the early part of the book, um, kind of setting the stage for this incident, um, for this development, and looking a little bit earlier at the United Front, right, which is the, um, I'm sure you can explain it better than I can, uh, but the sort of agreement between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party um, in the 1920s to not fight each other too much or entirely. Um, I, I mean, technically, it was probably more of a truce than that, but was it practically? Um, but anyway, you describe at the beginning of your book the violent breakup of the First United Front in 1927, and that the CCP had a whole bunch of different responses to it. There were a number of kind of splinters that developed. So could you set the stage for us a little bit about this violent breakup and then explain how the CCP splintered in response? Sure. Um as you said, uh, the Kuomintang and the old Nationalist Party uh, and the Chinese Communist Party, which is a much newer, uh, maybe more youth-oriented, more ideological, uh, more disciplined party, uh, had formed a uh, united front under uh, Sun Yat-sen's leadership. Sun Yat-sen, of course, died shortly thereafter in 1925. And uh, the Guomindang part of this uh, arrangement was subsequently led by Chiang Kai-shek, who was a military leader, uh, and he leads what's called the Northern Expedition. The movement was then based in South China in the city of Guangzhou, uh, and they took off from there heading towards central China. And as the expedition went on and in the immediate aftermath of Sun Yat-sen's death, Tensions developed between the Guomindang part and the uh, Chinese Communist Party, CCC part. And the, um, the CCP basically heads to Wuhan in the central China, sets up their own political apparatus there, and increasingly tries to corral, control Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek sets up his military headquarters in the city of Nanchang in Jiangxi province. And from there, uh, launches an expedition to Shanghai. Uh, and uh, after taking the city of Shanghai, uh, I would say with communist support and help in that, uh, Chiang Kai-shek suddenly turns on the Chinese Communist Party in uh, April 12th, 1927. And uh, that mostly night, uh, there were some... 500 or so communist leaders who were killed, uh, another thousand or so disappeared, uh, and the party was really um, broken up. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was usually described as, as a coup d'etat. Uh, and it was. It was a very violent split of what had been a united front. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party then has to decide uh, what to do. Uh, and, you know, you look back at this and you think, well, gee, if a powerful military force uh, had turned on me, I would go into hiding. I would rethink my strategy. I'd try to develop some military strength and uh, maybe fight another day. Uh, 
this is not what they did. Uh, they had a critical meeting on April the 7th, 1927. And you have another um, leader from the common turn, a man by the name of Beso uh, Lomanadze, come down to uh, Wuhan where they held the meeting. And of course, he calls Chengdu Shou, uh, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party up until that point. He calls him a rightist opportunist. This is the first time that the Chinese Communist Party has used uh, labels like that to label their political enemies. Uh, uh, this is getting close to the notion of a politically correct line. Um, and uh, at any case, they decide that what they need to do at that point is to launch a revolution. Uh, not that they hadn't had one, but to continue that um, because uh, the model here is really the Russian revolution. Uh, the Russian Revolution, you recall, uh, failed in um, failed in nineteen uh, in February, and then went on to success in November. And so they're thinking, well, we launch a bunch of uh, small revolutions, uprisings, really, and then they can very quickly converge on the cities, and lo and behold, we'll be in in power in no time. Uh, and so. Uh, Chu Chobai, who becomes the leader of the Chinese Communist Party at this time, uh, says, okay, party members, return to your home villages and start this these uprisings. And so the party scatters. And the interesting thing is there's there's very little central power here. Uh, the party's party center uh, it doesn't really have resources to disperse. And so all these different parts of the party really don't have this sense of hierarchy and discipline or even really a sense of mission other than violence. Uh, the, um, the violent aspect of this is really quite extraordinary. Um, uh, Chucho Bai is calling for red terrorism. They're talking about the slaughter of all um, landlords, big and small. Um, there's a real element of violence here. And so these people go back to their villages, and they're under a lot of pressure uh, to to launch revolutions, rebellions, and they do so, but they're not really, they, they don't have a sense of strategy. So you can gather a bunch of peasants, go into the uh, county town, and you usually get slaughtered because the county town has military forces or police forces that are simply much stronger. Um, and so you've lost a sense of hierarchy and of discipline. And some of these uh, Communist Party units actually just simply go into banditry. Uh, and so the sense of discipline uh, that had been built up between 1921 and 1927 really does disappear at this point. Is that uh, so? Um, answer your question yeah that does um and i i love that you kind of framed it as some other people just run and hide um because that is kind of the obvious assumption when you read these accounts of that coup um and it's interesting to sort of see how it develops so you in the book outline this splintering and then sort of focus at first on one of these aspects the dongu communist movement right um can you tell us about kind of how it developed and what about its method of development made it successful? Yeah. Um, 
your listeners are certainly not going to know the name Donggu. Donggu is the name of a township in eastern Jian um, County in Jiangxi province. It certainly plays no prominent role in any textbook. There are a few references to it in some of the specialized uh, literature, but very few. Uh, it certainly has never played a central role in any of the storytelling, and it really should play a more important role. Uh, the Donggu uh, Revolutionary Base Area was created by a number of um, young communist activists in that township. And I think it's really interesting who these people were, because these are the sons, uh, and they were just, this is all male-oriented, uh, just the sons of, it's hard to say the local elite, but the local, um, better off than most of society. Uh, Donggu itself, the reason I hesitate to use the term elite is because Donggu itself is an area that rents land from a different town, uh, actually Futian, which we will get back to later. Uh, and so these are not landlords themselves. They're not rich, um, although some of them are a little wealthier than others. Uh, and the leaders of these people uh, have all gone to um, school, uh, a, a, a normal school in the city of Jian, which means that their parents were able to support them enough to send them to school. So these are educated uh, elites, uh, local elites, um, which, you know, they, they grow up in this rural township, and it's really a very secluded place, which is one of the secrets of its longevity, is that it's pretty hard to get into this place. It's, it's surrounded by mountains, and so as they say, that it's easy to defend and hard to attack. Um, but these are people who, when they leave Donggu and develop these outside connections at school, they become radicalized. We're in the wake of the May 4th movement, the May 30th movement, uh, the Northern Expedition. And so they are converted to the idea that what China really needs is a revolution, land reform, uh, you know, to um, kill some of the landlords, maybe a lot of them. Um, and what holds them together is their elite status. And I say elite status based on where they come from. In that context, they're elite. And in a broader country context, they're not elite at all. Uh, and they, um, they're very uncertain about their own careers, where they're going to go. Uh, you know, when China abolished the examination system back in 1905, they really took down the ladder of success. Uh, where do these young people go? Uh, and do you study Chinese learning, Western learning? Uh, it's very confused at this time, and they are become dedicated revolutionaries. So they go back to Donggu, and they found, uh, find a, a, or set up a party cell of the Chinese Communist Party, and that becomes their organization. They will then, because they're classmates, they all get along very well with each other, which is something that other places didn't have. Another thing that other places didn't have is they happen to have been related, uh, family related, to the local bandits. Uh, a lot of rural areas in, 
in uh, hillside uh, Jiangxi hill country. Uh, you you seem to have bandits in every place, and you know they, they as I say they were uh, related. They knew each other, and they work out an alliance with the local bandits gang. It's not very big. It's not very powerful, but it gives them some muscle. So they now have uh, a military wing, if you will, and they have a political wing, and they can come together. And because they know each other, they're from the same area. They identify with the local culture. Um, they will be able to hang together uh, much better than other groups that are set up in other villages. Uh, this will expand um, because the original leader of this group, a man by the name of uh, uh, Lai Jingbang, uh, he's killed in one of their early raids. And so uh, the leadership is taken over uh, by another man by the name of Li Wenlin. Uh, and Li Wenlin is of a different order. Uh, he is well-educated. The, the point is, these are sons of relatively wealthy people. This is not, these are not peasants. Um, uh, Li Wenlin has been to school in Nanchang, uh, and uh, he actually uh, went to the Wampoa Military Academy, so he has military training. He participated in the uh, Northern Expedition, and he even participated in the Nanchang Uprising, which is the uprising, uh, which the Communist Party uh, uh, claims was the origin of the Red Army. Uh, so this is a guy that has good education, good family background, uh, the social connections that come with it, uh, and he's able to take over this Donggu movement and will begin to uh, expand its military wing and will, you know, it will occupy an area around Donggu and surrounding counties, uh, uh, covering roughly 23 townships. So this is not a small movement. Uh, it's, it's pretty large. And as I say, it sticks together in a way that other places didn't. And it sticks together because of the solidarity of this leadership group, their relationship with the original bandits, and because Donggu is physically isolated and, you know, not easy to attack. Got it. Thank you for explaining the kind of multiple aspects of it, right? That it has to do with, in some ways, terrain, in some ways, education. Um, but it was really interesting how clearly it came through in the book. And again, in your answer just now, the ties as well between the different people um, really kind of is something that in some ways, it, it doesn't sound like it was the, the Donggu movement was the only splinter movement that had that um but it definitely sets itself up as being quite different than some of the other splinters um but now that we've kind of built this up you've explained um why it, what it was and why it worked um unfortunately we do now have to reveal um spoiler alert for something that happened decades before um that the dongu movement was in fact suppressed right how and why well this is a a bit of a complicated story, but with the patience of your listeners, I'll try to explain this. As I think everybody knows, uh, Mao Zedong went off to Jingan Shan. Um, Mao Zedong always had a um, uh, 
a theory of building up the military. Uh, I, one of the things that I should have noted when I was talking about Chu Bai and the leadership there uh, is that they did not value a military, probably because the party had been manhandled by militaries before, um, whether it's Warlord or the Chiang Kai-shek militaries. Uh, they wanted. They were very idealistic. They thought if they went out and aroused the peasants, the peasants would rise up and overthrow uh, the ruling powers that were there. And you know, some people, including Mao, said, "No, the way you gain power is to build up a military and uh, head up to the mountains for a while." And he was actually criticized by the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party for relying too much on the military. Well, uh, he went up to Jingganshan and he built his military uh, with the help of Juda, of course. Uh, and ultimately, it didn't work. Uh, in part, uh, it was because another revolutionary by the name of Peng Dehuai came up to Jingganshan in the w- winter of 1928-29 um, and uh, all of a sudden, there were just too many people to, f- to feed. So they said, uh, Pung, why don't you stay here and hold the base area? Judah and I will take most of the troops, our troops, and we'll leave and we'll, um, you know, set off on a, uh, some guerrilla warfare around Jiangxi. Uh, well, the, their army was followed, harassed, um, in very great danger. And they come to Donggu after some weeks of marching and fighting. And the military, Mao's Red Army, such as it was, was nearly destroyed at that point. And they spent a, a week in Donggu, and everybody was happy. The exchange of gifts and all this sort of stuff. And Mao said, you know, if we hadn't had that week in Donggu, the Red Army simply would not have survived. Well, at this time, after a week, Guomindang armies are beginning to converge, and Miles leaves the Donggu area, or the Donggu area itself probably would have been destroyed. At any case, um, about a year later, Mao comes back to the area. Uh, he's a little bit stronger at this point, and uh, he uh, he sets up. Actually, he sets up a a a, a base area, if you will very near um, Futian, in a, in a little town near that. Um, at any case, uh, they hold this um, meeting on February 7th, 1930. And this is really one of the critical turning points in the year, development of the early uh, Communist Party. And it's what, it, what Mao does is he begins to incorporate other armies into his own army. So Peng uh army uh, is incorporated into the Red Army, uh, another army, especially what was called the Sixth Army, which is formed out of local troops. This is when Mao begins to try to take over uh, the armies that have grown up in Donggu and other places and incorporate them into his own army. Uh, and um, uh, he incorporates him into his own army. And, um, you know, he, this is when the so-called general front, he's been a, in charge of a, a front committee. Now it's a general front committee. In other words, he takes command 
of all these local forces and his own forces. And this is without authorization of the party center in Shanghai. Uh, and so he's just taking over. Uh, the other thing that is done there is there's a decision there that says, you know, the local party committees are all dominated by landlords and rich peasants. And we need to get rid of those landlords and rich peasants because they're just following an opportunist line. Well, landlords and rich peasants were the type of people that led local movements like that in Donggu. Uh, so what he's really doing is trying to get rid of the local elite. And, you know, he wants to arouse the peasantry. That never quite works, but he does want to get rid of this local elite. Um, the other issue is that he wants to fight a, a battle by luring the enemy in deep. If you've studied uh, the revolution at all, this is one of those phrases that says, you know, lure the enemy in deep and it's great guerrilla tactics um, and win the, win the battles that way. Well, luring the enemy in deep is not such a good idea if you're luring them into your own hometown. And that's what Mao was advocating. And so Li Wenlin, the leader of the Donggu movement at that time, really argues with Mao. Uh, and they, you know, this uh, builds up and Mao is very frustrated. Li Wenlin is not the only person in Donggu and that area that just doesn't like this idea. So um, the, the Red Armies retreat to an area um, near Donggu, uh, and what, well, I, I, I'm sorry, need to insert one other thing. Is it about three months after this meeting in uh, February, all of a sudden, uh, in one of the party headquarters, they discover members of the so-called AB clique. Well, the AB clique, AB stands for anti-Bolshevik. There had been an AB clique in Jiangxi, in 1927, but it was completely eliminated in the period following that. So somebody says, well, okay, they've revived. They're infiltrating the Chinese Communist Party. And so they begin to arrest people. And when you arrest somebody and you say, are you a member of the AB clique? He says, no. Well, you twist his arm. Maybe you twist it pretty hard. And eventually, if you apply enough pressure and enough pain, and they became very good at, uh, uh, at um, applying pain, uh, eventually the guy breaks down and says, yes, yes, I'm a member of the AB clique. Just let me die. Um, and they say, well, you have to reveal the names of other people. So you, you automatically name people that you know. And so then they go out and arrest those people. Uh, and apply similar hard methods to them. Uh, what is coming out of this, and it develops very slowly, and, and people like Li Wenlin seem quite oblivious to it at first. They, they, you know, you're in a, a wartime situation. They become paranoid. They think, well, the Guomindang really is infiltrating the Communist Party by sending these AB clique people in there. And so, but, but the bottom line is that the locals are the ones who always end up as members of the so-called 
A.B. Twan, A.B. Cleek. Um, and so the tensions between Mao's outsiders, remember Mao is from Hunan. Uh, these people are Jiangxi um, local. And the dis- distinction between local and outsider is a very real distinction in that period of time. Uh, the, the tensions between these groups becomes palpable. Um, would you like me to continue on into the Futian incident? or Yes, uh, please. Okay. Um, the Futian incident is the one that has gotten the most attention. Uh, but in the suppression of the AB Tuan, uh, what should get more attention is that there is a... Um, uh, there's a suppression of revolutionary, of, I'm sorry, of AB clique people in the Red Army itself. Uh, the armies turn on some of their own people, uh, and they probably kill, uh, oh, about 1,500 people. Uh, this is bloody. Uh, they take people out, and, you know, it's, it's one of these situations where, you know, if you don't accuse somebody else of being in the AB clique, you're likely to be accused of being in the AB clique. Uh, and having done this uh, extermination uh, of groups, they move on to this town of Futian, which, by the way, is a very lovely town uh, built in the Ming Dynasty. Uh, and But this is where the local leaders of the uh, Donggu Revolutionary Movement have set up their headquarters. Li Wenlin is there, and so well, actually, Li Wenlin himself is not there, but all of his leadership is there. And Mao s- sends one of his assistants over there to arrest these people and accuse them of being AB um, clique members. And so he goes over there and rounds up probably sixty or seventy people, ties them up, starts whipping them, and whatever other measures. And, you know, one, one person uh, is accused of being A.B. Tuan, A.B. Cleek. He's uh, arrested, but then he convinces the person who arrested him, there's someone from the same hometown, that he's not A.B. Cleek, and he lets him go. And so he, the next morning, runs over to Futian and frees these people and the, you know they then um, write a report to Shanghai. They they rebel. They rebel. They say we're not members of the AB clique. They rebel. And you know the bottom line here is that Shanghai um, Party Center will send a group out to um, out to Donggu, and they will. Take every member of the uh, of a particular army. It's called the Twentieth Army. Uh, every officer from the platoon level up, seven or eight hundred people are taken out and shot. Uh, so that ends the Futian Rebellion, Futian Incident, which was really, as as I say, this is ultimately a conflict between local forces and outside forces. Uh, later, later documentation, I think, has proven beyond a doubt that there were, were no members of the AB uh, group in this area. Uh, a PLA officer by the name of Xiao Ke, General uh, Xiao Ke, says that he talked to both uh, Communist Party intelligence and Guomindang intelligence, and 
verified that in this area there were no, or or other areas there simply were no AB clique people. This was something that was made up, that was widely believed, and was used to exact terrible violence on the Chinese Communist Party itself. Uh, and so you get this clash uh, between outsiders and insiders, locals, that results in this terrible violence. And this this will not end the violence. It's carried on into the Central Soviet that will be um, established shortly after these incidents. I think I've... So, so tell us then about kind of the political side, right? We've, we've, we now, it's very clear kind of the violent picture of it and the insider-outsider conception is really helpful. Um, but you then go on to talk about kind of uh, the violence obviously has an impact on how the CCP moves forward, right? Splinters are essentially being eradicated. Um, but then you also talk about some of the kind of political aspects of it, specifically a meeting on February 7th of 1930. Oh, no, I, I talked about the February 7th meeting before. I'm sorry, that was the meeting that incorporated Peng Dehuai's troops into, into Mao's troops and that he took over there. That, so uh, why was this decision so significant? Well, because because Mao is aggrandizing his own power uh, without any authority from party headquarters in Shanghai. Um, he's simply incorporating Peng Dehuai's army, this other uh, sixth army that is uh, local troops, and saying, you all listen to me. And he had no authority to do that. Uh, it's setting up a much more hierarchical party, and this will be the meeting that, that that ultimately will lead to the launching of the suppression of the so-called AB group. Mm. Thank you for kind of clarifying that, because I think it is an important aspect. It's a, it's a critical meeting. So what then, um, we've got this critical meeting, we've got the kind of violence, we've got the suppression of the insiders by the outsiders, um, or the locals by the outsiders. Um what were the consequences of this violence within the CCP in the longer term? Well, for the Jiangxi Soviet period, um, I think the, the consequences are that it set up sort of a model of violence. Um, you know, you, um, in the Jiangxi Soviet period, you set up something called... Uh, the Political Protection Bureau, which is really um, your secret police. And their job was was really twofold, was to go out and collect money uh, because the, they were short of resources and to find people who allegedly belonged to this AB group. Uh, and these people were remarkably uncontrolled by higher authorities. They, they really were, um, if you headed one of these uh, groups, you were really in charge. And given the violence, the uh, atmosphere of the time, if you didn't go out and find people who were allegedly AB people, then you must be AB people. Well, given this atmosphere, this unleashes a tremendous amount of violence. Uh, and of course, as you're as you're going out through the countryside, as I say, the other job was to collect money. You call a meeting of the local peasants and you, you 
ask for money. Uh, they say they don't have any. And you say, well, are you a member of the AB group? Oh, uh, in that case, I can find some loose change. Um, you know, the atmosphere was just tremendously uh, oppressive um, here. Often they they were in charge of re- recruiting peasants to join the Red Army. No peasant wanted to join the Red Army. I think this is one of the real misunderstandings of the revolution. We often think of it as a peasant revolution. Um, peasants did not voluntarily join the Red Army because they didn't want to leave whatever land they had, uh, especially if they were the beneficiaries of land distribution. They just want to cultivate the land. They don't want to go and join the, the military. Their wives don't want them to go because you might get killed. Um, and so there was tremendous resistance to joining the Red Army. If you're joining a militia that defends your hometown, that's one thing. If you're joining the Red Army that's going to go fight in other counties, you want no part of that. Uh, And so the party often employed deceptive techniques like, we just need you to come up here and help us for a couple of days. You're you're not joining the Red Army. Um, Well, you were joining the Red Army, um, whether you wanted to or not. So there were a lot of defections uh, from the Red Army as people felt coerced or tricked into joining the army, and then they would leave. Um, so it's really hard to depict this as any sort of bottom-up revolutionary movement. And yet you argue in the book that um, Mao's ultimately successful taking over in the countryside was only possible because first there were local efforts, such as you described earlier in Donggu. So yeah. how do we understand the kind of what, why was it that the local had to come first, even if, as you said, there were these pretty strong tensions um, when it came to recruiting those in the countryside? I think that's a, a really good question, which I've pondered. And I, I think that what it is, is that people like Li Wenlin and those around him uh, and local activists they really took over their own local society. They're the ones who really broke down the clan-based um, what social order that was in that area. They talked in terms of revolutionary terms. They talked about Marxist ideology. Um, and these were the, the new elite, if you will. Uh, and so they broke down the old order, created an incomplete new order, and in this way, I think they really opened the door for Mao to be able to penetrate, penetrate more deeply into the countryside. Uh, one, of the, one thing that um, the Chinese Communist Party was very good at doing, even in this early period, was organizing peasants. Um, that when they controlled an area, uh, they gave everybody a job. Uh, and... You know, I mean, it might be something as simple as joining a uh, a song group so that you would get uh, village women out of the house, which is very non-traditional, and they would join this group and you could get together once a week or whatever and sing revolutionary songs. Well, among other things, this makes it very difficult for any woman in the village to say, no, 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 I don't, I, I, I don't want to sing. 
what? Are you not, don't support the revolution? Oh, of course I support the revolution. Well, then come on. So you incorporate everybody into uh, these sorts of organizations and give everybody a job. And it's a remarkable um, story about organization. But I don't think you could have done this without the real breaking up of uh, rural society prior to that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's very evocative, the idea of a singing group and kind of how that changes uh, what people feel able to say yes and no to. So um, thank you for kind of explaining what looks like a contradiction, um, but actually mm-hmm. makes sense in terms of kind of breaking down social structure and making changes. Um, so to sort of continue this idea of taking a kind of overview of this time period, right, the book covers 1927 to 1934, which maybe sounds like not that many years, but actually, as you've detailed, a lot is happening. So can you sort of give us an overview? What would you say were the main ways in which the CCP was one thing in 1927 and then very different in 1934? What are the main changes we see? I think that's the critical question because obviously the Communist Party was driven out of Jiangxi in 1934, set off on the long march. But it was a very different party than what had been there in 1927. Uh, First of all, it's now really a militarized organization. If Chucho Bai and so forth had opposed the militarization of the Chinese Communist Party in 1927, um, you know, now it was completely militarized. The military was the backbone of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, uh, Second, you know, the splintering, there's no splintering now. You're either part of a group and a base area, and there were other base areas, I want to make clear, but you, you don't have the sort of township or village uprising happening anymore by 1934. Uh, you're either part of a bigger revolutionary base area or you're basically, well, you don't exist. Um, so it's a much more concentrated, centralized uh, organization. Uh, there will obviously still be contention for leadership over that party. Mao will still have to Uh, fend off several other contenders for power. But the idea that there are now only relatively small number of uh, potential leaders, that's that's pretty clear. Uh, Discipline. Uh, One thing that torturing people does is make them answer uh, questions a lot faster. I think that one of the things that uh, this this hunt for so-called AB Tuan, AB clique people did was, um, you know, make people fight harder. Uh, if you don't fight harder, uh, you're, you're suspect. Uh, so you're bringing a, a sort of hierarchical discipline to a society, rural China at that time, you just don't have that sort of hierarchical discipline that uh, you came out of this. So by 1934, this is a very different party. It's, it's much more hierarchical much more disciplined, um, fewer contenders for leadership, uh, and uh, much more disciplined, I guess. I, I didn't list that one. Uh, so it's a really quite different party. And this is 
probably the party that we know uh, expanding from the Yan'an years onward. Mm, yeah, those are some pretty big changes. Um, and definitely things that, as I sort of hinted at in the beginning, are aspects of the CCP that we may be more familiar with as it goes later on and don't necessarily know where that came from. Um, so I think in that sense, your book uh, is really helpful in sort of excavating the origins of stuff that we might be used to. Um, well, that's what I'm trying to do, yes. <laughs> well, good, because that's what, as a reader, it seems like you were doing. Um <laughs> So now that we've kind of covered the main ground of your book, obviously not in nearly as much detail as the book itself, um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about the kind of process of writing it, the behind the scenes, as it were. Um, and in particular, I was wondering if you'd be able to talk a little bit about um, how you did research for this book, um, given that there are some a number of things that seem, at least from the outside, to be like challenges. First of all, this was a long time ago. Um, this is a history that's not particularly well known. Um, so accessing, obviously everyone's dead, so you can't go interview people, accessing the documents, you know, what kinds of documents were there? Um, and also, given the political sensitivity of the history of the CCP, obviously there's still the political party in power in China. Um, did that impact your research process at all? Um, no, not much. Um, I'm a pretty independent guy. Um, I think that everybody who goes back to this period uh, reads a book written by uh, a man by the name of Dai Xiaoqing, Dai Xiangqing, sorry, and his wife. Uh, and that's the one that really blows up the um, myth that there was an AB group there. Um, I can't remember my the year that was published off the top of my head, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, and so this is the sort of the first really comprehensive effort to go through the data. And uh, Dai Xiangqing was a very diligent researcher. And, you know, that's really the basis of the starting point for studying this period. Uh, there are lots of documents that have been published uh, in an earlier period, uh, usually in the uh, early to mid 80s, um, that the trouble with reading documents by themselves is you don't have the context and, you know, you have to go through and figure out what the context is. And that just requires reading things like the Dai Xiangqing book, reading other documents, uh, talking to uh, scholars who have studied this period uh, and at least know the general outlines. Uh, the specifics are tend to elude even even specialists. Um, I think that over the last oh decade or so, uh, there have been um, efforts to celebrate the history of Donggu because this really was forgotten history. Um, it was forgotten because it's really embarrassing. Uh, it's um, you know the Futian incident is a real black mark on the history of the Chinese Communist Party. And so you can't really, um, you know, in the in, until the 80s or 90s, you just didn't even know about this. Uh, the name uh, Li, Li Wenlin is erased from one of Mao Zedong's famous letters to uh, Lin Biao, uh, a military commander. Uh, so this was an extremely sensitive part uh, of party history. And I think that it's become less sensitive simply because 
uh, time has gone by, uh, and there are people who want to try to recover the the real um, the real face of of the revolution. Uh, there have been a number of scholars in China that have uh, studied parts of this, uh, and you know I think that they have written in and around the incident. Um, I don't think that they're allowed yet to pull things together the way I have tried to do in this book. Um, that's just, I expect this will, uh, eventually this, all of this is going to come out and probably in a much better, more complete, comprehensive way than, than I as an outsider can do. But yes, you're right. It is difficult to study. Uh, the, the data is very scattered. Um, and you just have to, you rely on reading hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents, talking to people, um, scholarship that's that's available. Well, in those hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents and conversations, um, was there anything in particular, maybe maybe even something that didn't make it into the book, that particularly surprised you? Um, well... I, I mean, this whole insider-outsider division was something that I had not expected to find. Um, the idea that the that peasants really don't want to join the revolution is a surprise. Um, the role of uh, Li Wenlin in leading the Donggu revolutionary movement, uh, you know, is, is you know. It's it's really surprising, and how he um, fought with Mao. Uh, I mean, they go to meetings and they really fight with each other verbally. Uh, and you know how you know I'd always thought of the luring the enemy in deep as this great invention of Mao Zedong and one of the secrets to his guerrilla warfare, without thinking about how many local people. Are going to get killed in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, the uh, popular um, part of the story um, after uh, the Futian incident, the Guomindang and the so-called first extermination campaign goes right through Donggu, and the Guomindang general spends three days burning and killing. So Li Wenlin was right that this strategy was going to be devastating for the local area. But then he pushed too far, and the communist armies, Mao's army, was able to defeat his army, which paid no attention to um, uh, what to support from other other military forces, and they um, they killed the Guomindang general, and uh, actually decapitated him and nailed his head to a board and sent it down the Gan River back to Nanchang. Uh, so in that sense. I suppose you'd have to say Mao was right that luring the enemy in deep did give them an advantage of understanding the local geography and you know mobility and the ability to apply guerrilla tactics. Um, but I think one of the things that this surprises you surprises you is the just the incredible violence in this period. Uh, I think that by the end of the Central Soviet uh, area. Probably something north of 70,000 people had been executed as suspected members of the AB group. And 
at least 70% of those were members of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, and I think that that's one of the reasons, just one of the reasons why the Chinese Communist Party had to leave Jiangxi and embark on the long march. Hmm. Yep. Okay. That, I'm glad I'm not the only one who is surprised. Um, I certainly had heard the name Donggu, but had never thought of the insider-outsider aspect um, and found that really added a lot of layers to kind of understanding that period that is often sort of murky and kind of like a greatest hits, like the United Front broke down, everyone fled, and then we somehow now have Mao in charge and the long march. And it's sort of like, okay, hang on a second. It's probably a lot more complicated than that. Um, <laughs> so thank you for looking through the hundreds of documents and uh, helping us understand that. Um, and so then for my final question, now that this book is published, what are you working on now or next? Uh, I think when I finished this one, I was so exhausted, um, uh, drained. I haven't really um, landed on a new project yet, uh, although I think I'm uh, interested in sort of the origins of the Korean War and the Sino-Soviet relations and more broadly in trying to better relate uh, China's domestic politics to its foreign policy, something mm. that seems to be quite relevant today, but mm -hmm. I want to explore it historically. Fascinating. Well, best of luck with that, um, but probably do take a break. This book has literally just come out. Um, yes. And while you go off and decide what your next project is, Listeners can read the book we've just been discussing, which as a reminder is titled Forging Leninism in China, Mao and the Remaking of the Chinese Communist Party, 1927 to 1934, published just now in 2022 by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Joe Fusmith, thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise with the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Melcher, for this very pleasant conversation. <laughs>